This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 23rd, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, news intern Ronnie Dengler is here with a story on genes that may cause morning sickness, the scourge of many a pregnancy. And Tracy Bedrosian is here to discuss how maternal care alters the genomes of brain cells in young mice. Now we have Ronnie Dengler, one of our intrepid news interns, here on her very last day at science. Hi, Ronnie. Hi. <laughs> the story tries to answer the question, which genes are linked to morning sickness, a.k.a. nausea and vomiting associated with pregnancy, and the more severe form. How do you say this? Hyperemesis gravidarum. All right, Ronnie. How common is this in pregnancy? It's not super common. Only about 0.3 to 2% of women who are pregnant have the severe form, Mm -hmm. but about 80% of women who are pregnant experience some nausea and vomiting. I saw the range on the paper. It was 50 to 80%. I'm like, that's a pretty wide range, but it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's very uncomfortable as a person who has been pregnant. And the more severe form is pretty dangerous, not just to the fetus, but actually to the woman. I found out this killed Charlotte Bronte, a great loss to the world. And someone made it very famous a couple of years ago. Kate Middleton? Kate Middleton, British royalty at this point. So what makes it so dangerous? What makes it so dangerous is that these women are basically unable to eat. They aren't able to keep food down and they aren't able to stay hydrated. So they become severely dehydrated and severely malnourished. And so that's not good for them or the baby. One of the diagnosing features is women lose between 5 to 10% of their body oh, yeah. weight, which is quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. What did we know about the genetics of morning sickness before this? If my mom was morning sick, am I going to be morning sick, that kind of thing? There was a little bit known about whether or not morning sickness was hereditary, but this is really the first study to show a genetic link with an identifiable molecule. Mm -hmm. So previous work by this lead researcher showed that 
if your sister had it, you had a 17-fold increase in also having the severe form of morning sickness. Mm-hmm. So this is a GWAS study, a genome-wide association study, this new study. And so they needed lots of genomes in order to figure out what changes, you know, how they're different between people with or without this. So where did they get these genomes? From pregnant women who submitted samples to 23andMe. They had about 1,300 participants who had this severe form of nausea and vomiting associated with pregnancy and 15,000 who didn't have any nausea and vomiting. Okay. What associations were they able to find? You said they found a protein. Did they find specific genes that were linked with this? So they found two loci in the genome that are associated with two different genes. Uh, One of them is called GDF15, Hmm. um, and that one had the highest significance for being associated with the severe form of morning sickness. Um, and the other one was also highly implicated. It's called IGF-BP7. So they found these loci. What do, what do we know about what these genes do? Are they encoding proteins? Or are they doing something else? Yes. So both of the genes that they found encode proteins. One of them is involved in actually suppressing the immune system's response and helping with the establishment of pregnancy and then maintaining pregnancy. But it's also the one that has the highest significance for being implicated in causing these symptoms of nausea and vomiting. So it sort of has these this dual role where on the one hand, it's helping out with pregnancy, and on the other hand, Maybe it is helping out with pregnancy and keeping women from eating things that might be bad for the fetus, but it's doing so in a way that is potentially harmful to the mom. And I've been wondering this since I saw the headline on the lineup. If you gave this protein to someone, would it make them feel the way I felt the first trimester of my pregnancy? Potentially. This molecule actually is in development as an appetite suppressant to help people control how much they eat. One thing that came up when we were talking about this earlier was that some women experience morning sickness in their first pregnancy and not in their second or vice versa. What what might be happening there if you have a gene that gives you this predilection for it? Most women who experience it in one pregnancy will experience it in another pregnancy. But some women say that the symptoms aren't as severe Mm -hmm. the second time around. And the lead researcher speculates that this might be because these women sort of know what's happening, and so they seek treatment earlier than they would have during their first pregnancy when they didn't know what to expect or how severe, quote-unquote, normal morning sickness might feel like. Right. And what about the cases where they don't have it their first and they do have it their second? That potentially could have something to do with how much of the protein is being made. So this is pure speculation, but the thought is that If it gets passed down to the fetus, then the fetus is also making this form of the protein and the mom is making it. And so there's more of the protein that would cause women to feel nauseous. Okay. So we talked about what happens when you give this protein to people. Maybe you're going to inhibit their appetite. What if you take it away somehow, knock it down, do some kind of treatment that makes it go away? Are you going to help women with morning sickness or are you going to help people who have other problems with nausea? It potentially could help women with morning sickness. 
it also potentially is helping people right now with cancer who suffer the same kinds of symptoms, having severe nausea and vomiting um, and a loss of appetite. Okay, Ronnie, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, Dave, so you're here just to share what else is on the site this week. Can you tell us some of the news? Yeah, so uh, we've got a story about whether table salt can help us cool the planet. Also, just how accurate are earthquake warning systems and is there a way to make them more accurate? For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a Utah air pollution mystery, and also an update on chimpanzee retirement. Uh, The pace has been pretty slow, and we'll be checking in to see if it's speeding up again, getting chimpanzees uh, out of research facilities and into sanctuaries. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. Stay tuned for Tracy Bedrosian. She talks about the effect of maternal care on brain cell genomes in young mice. This week's show is brought to you in part by Audible. With the much-anticipated star study movie release of Ready Player One, why not immerse yourself in the virtual world before watching the movie? Download and listen to Ready Player One with incredible narration by the unparalleled Will Wheaton on Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. And as an Audible member, you get a monthly credit for any audiobook in the store, regardless of price. Unused credits roll over to the next month, and if you don't like your audiobook, you can exchange it, no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. Go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Visit audible.com slash science magazine or text science magazine to 500-500 to start your 30-day free trial with a free audiobook of your choice. Although we highly recommend listening to Ready Player One before the movie comes out. That's audible.com slash science magazine, S-C-I-E-N-C-E-M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E. Or text science magazine to 500-500 to start your 30-day free trial. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Credible.com. Student loans can completely wipe you out if you don't get a handle on them. And how do you do that? Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. And using their simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. Plus, you could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com slash magazine, answer a few questions, and right away, you get real rates, not a range of rates, from multiple lenders. Credible.com is completely free to use, and checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, our listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash magazine. Pay off your student loans faster or lower your monthly payment, whatever works for you. Just go to Credible.com slash magazine. Our brains are genetic mosaics. Each cell or neuron does not have the same genome as the next one. Where do these changes come from and how do they relate to the development and function of the brain? 
Writing this week in Science, Tracy Bedrosian and colleagues find genetic changes in mice brains when they're exposed to more or less maternal care. We're going to talk about what those changes are and some potential ways the environment can so directly affect the genomes of brain cells. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you for having me. All right. How did I do when I summarized the research? (laughs) Are we talking about genomic changes in brain cells in mice? Yeah, I think that sounded really good, actually. Oh, good. Yay. Let's open with a compliment. Okay. (laughs) So let's talk about neurons and, you know, brain cells. How do their genomes differ within an individual mouse? What do we know about that, you know, before we start doing these kinds of experiments that you did here? Kind of what we're all taught growing up that you inherit the static blueprint of genes from your parents. And it's kind of like every cell has the same genetic information, but it turns out that's not quite true. Cells can differ from one another by having a number of different genetic mutations. So there can be things like copy number variations, deletions of pieces of genomic code in one cell, but not in another. Or um, what we were studying in this particular project is mobile pieces of DNA. So genes that can actually replicate themselves and then insert a copy of themselves into a new place in the genome where they then might affect, you know, the function of another totally different gene. And we should be clear that we're talking exclusively about somatic mutations. So these are cells of the body that, you know, they live with us, but then, you know, our our gene line, our germ line, you know, what we're passing down, it's not, it's not what we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. These are kind of mutations that you acquire throughout your life. That's why they affect, you know, not every cell, they affect, you know, a mosaic of cells. Right, right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about these mobile elements. They're kind of the rogue elements of the genome. They're there. We have many of them and they can copy themselves and insert themselves. Which one specifically did you study here in the brains of mice? In this project, we were looking at the line one or L1 retrotransposon. So it's one of the most abundant mobile elements in mammals. And what it does is it encodes all of the machinery it needs to replicate itself and insert itself into the genome. So it's this kind of self-containing, replicating machine. Hmm. And people have those too, and mice have those. Yeah, they do. Although mice have many more copies than humans. Right. What does it do besides replicate itself and put itself elsewhere in the genome? Does it affect the expression of other genes? It can actually affect the function of other genes depending on where it goes. So if it goes into an important gene in the right spot, it might turn down the expression of that gene or it might turn it up. Uh, It can do many different things. It can wreak havoc if it, if it, yeah. <laughs> it an, probably on accident. We don't really know much about it, this element's intentions. Okay, so <laughs> getting back to maternal care, how do you define whether a mouse is getting high levels of maternal care or low levels of maternal care? This is kind of something people have studied for quite a while. Mice have a ton of variation in how they care for their young. And what we can do uh, in the lab is, you know, very passively just observe the behavior of these mothers with their litters. And we can make note of the time that they're spending grooming and licking their pups and nursing their pups uh, versus doing other behaviors and get an idea of the quality and quantity of care that their pups are getting. And so then what you wanted to do was see if there's an effect on the presence of these retrotransposons in the brains of their offspring after they're exposed to high levels of maternal care and low levels of maternal care. What did you see? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so in the pups that had gotten lower levels of care, we tended to see about 50% more copies of these line one retrotransposons in a region of the brain called the hippocampus. That's a really large number, right? Because this is actually, there are already a large number of these to start out with. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I'll give the caveat that we need to do more experiments to actually sequence the locations of these insertions and confirm the kinds of numbers we're seeing. But we saw a pretty big difference. So how do you know that the moms just didn't already have more of these and then they pass them to their offspring? We checked the copy number of the transposons in the mothers as well as the fathers. They all had pretty similar levels starting off. And we also did some experiments to cross-foster the pups to a a different mother um, and found that the level of these line one retrotransposons correlated better with the care of the mother that raised them versus their biological mother. Right. So there wasn't happening while they were in utero that they were getting this difference. Right. Okay, wow. So how, can I just ask you what the mechanism is? I mean, how could this change in maternal care affect um, these genetic elements, you know, copying themselves and inserting themselves into extra places? That's still kind of an open question. There's been a lot of other studies that have looked at different cellular factors that can affect the expression of line one retrotransposons, things like stress and hormones. They can all upregulate L1 expression, which could lead to more insertions. We did look at the methylation of these elements. So that's um, a mechanism that is used to repress the expression of line one in the brain. We saw that there were lower levels of methylation in the pups that had received lower levels of maternal care. So they may have less repression of those line one elements. And this is very early in their lives, right? How how young are we talking? Yeah, we looked at the pups within the first two weeks of life. And how does that line up with what we know is going on in the brain in terms of development? I mean, is this a time when things are changing a lot in the brain of, of the mouse pups? Yeah, absolutely. Especially the hippocampus, which is one reason that we honed in on that brain area. So these line one retrotransposons are more able to jump around in the brain during cell division. And the hippocampus is one of the areas in the brain that continues to go through a lot of division and development postnatally. And how does this square with what we know about genomic changes in the brain during development and during learning later in life? Is that something that we consistently see, you know, as a mechanism for these things? Or is this is this a new way of looking at um, changes in the brain? People looking at studying the effects of maternal care have seen all kinds of changes in the brain in response to these differences early in life. So changes in gene expression and gene methylation, and these things translate into behavioral changes later on in life. But I think what we've identified here is potentially an additional mechanism where the brain is plastic in response to these early life experiences. Mm -hmm. So has it been observed before that there are genomic changes in the brain, you know, through development, like in relation to other stimuli? Not really. There's been a couple studies that showed that there's more of these mobile elements in the brains of schizophrenics. Some studies have shown like exercise can induce more mobile element 
insertions, but this is kind of one of the first studies to actually look at a natural early life experience tied to these kinds of changes. Okay. Could something like this be happening in people? I mean, do we have, you know, differences in maternal care and differences in transposons? Can we look at people and try to figure out this is going on? Yeah, I think it's definitely possible to imagine this type of thing happening in people. Although I will (laughs) say that humans have only maybe 90 to 100 active line one elements in their uh, genome, whereas mice have on the order of 3,000. So it's a very big difference. So if something like this is happening in humans, it might be happening to a much smaller extent. We don't know is the short answer. (laughs) Right. And and would we be able to find out if this was going on in people? Yeah. I mean, there are a number of groups studying human populations of you know children that have been subjected to neglect or mistreatment early in life there's even a couple studies that found reduced methylation on uh, different kinds of mobile elements in these kinds of populations Okay. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Tracy Bedrosian is a clinical research scientist at NIT, Neurotechnology Innovations Translator. She and her colleagues write about mobile genetic elements and maternal care this week in science. You can find a link to the study at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.